This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's no sign the government shutdown will end anytime soon. This comes after weekend meetings that failed to reach a compromise and after President Trump threatened to let the shutdown continue for months, even years. One of the most visible impacts is on national parks, including Rocky Mountain National Park. Today, Colorado Congressman Joe Neguse will be in Estes Park to see some of that firsthand. Esti Rivera leads the Rocky Mountain Conservancy. It's a nonprofit that helps the National Park Service manage Rocky, and it is taking on extra duties during the shutdown. Esti, thanks for being with us. Yes, thank you. Good morning. Rocky Mountain National Park is one of the busiest in the nation, usually. It's certainly beloved. Should people who care about Rocky be concerned with what's happening to it during the shutdown? Yes, absolutely. Um, We are going on week three, I guess, right now for the shutdown, and we're really starting to see a lot of impacts in the park. Uh, The national media has done a lot of coverage around particularly garbage in bathrooms, but I think there are a lot of impacts that we're not seeing Um, that are happening, research being one of those uh, immediate concerns. We've had a few research projects that are completely um, at a halt right now. Yeah, Rocky Mountain National Park is the site of a lot of research uh, into climate change, all sorts of things. Talk to me just a little bit about the research that's being handicapped here. Yeah, just, I mean, one of the examples is there's a nitrogen deposition study where data has to be collected every week. Um, This has been happening since the 1980s. Um, So tomorrow um, is going to be week three that this data hasn't been collected, and that'll be the largest data gap in this data set. Uh, And this isn't the sort of thing that you can just catch up on. Um, And these are critical data collection points that help uh, the Park Service decide how they're going to manage these sites and set goals for reducing nitrogen. Um, The park has one of the the largest um, high alpine ecosystems, and so managing that um, is very important when we think about Uh, climate change and the effects of pollution. You mentioned the bathrooms and the trash, and certainly there's been a lot of coverage of that. What is the bathroom and trash situation right now at Rocky? Uh, You know, right now we have a lot of snow falling right this second. Um, I'm in Estes Park, Uh, so a lot of the roads are closed because they're plowed and just undrivable, so I don't have a sense of what's happening in the park. Um, Mm. At the the visitor centers, uh, there are certainly some um, areas of trash that are starting to pile up. Uh, You mentioned the roads, which can't be plowed at this point. Uh, I note, though, that over the weekend, uh, the federal government uh, looked into the possibility of using park entrance fees, camping fees, and other fees, including parking fees, for critical maintenance. Things like plowing roads, maybe addressing the trash and the restroom situation. Can you say if that will move forward at Rocky Mountain National Park? Uh, It's an evolving conversation right now, and this is a new area for the Park Service um, to use fee money in that way. But it is possible that those funds will be used for bathroom cleaning, uh, garbage, and plowing here in Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, that, That doesn't, you know, encompass all the other services that would be happening in the park. A good example is right now I mentioned it's snowing a ton. Yeah. Whenever this happens, uh, park fire management staff would be out burning all of those big burn piles that you see that were built up over the summer just to reduce fuel hazards and those sorts of things. Um, so that obviously can't happen and won't happen with these fee monies. 
I think that right now people are basically, if they go into the park, doing so at their own risk. In national parks across the country, three people have died since the shutdown began. Uh, fortunately, you've not seen that, I, I believe, at Rocky. But uh, I suppose if someone goes into the park and needs help, like, what would happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. This is a winter playground for backcountry sports in the winter. Last December, the park had over 112,000 visitors just in the month of December. Um, it's in the top five most visited parks. And part of that has to do with, you know, people come here to see winter. They want to go sledding in Hidden Valley or backcountry skiing. Um, and those are risky sports. Um, they can be safe, but they're a lot riskier when there's no one to call for help. We, as the Conservancy, we have a field institute where we lead classes, and we've had to cancel our avalanche safety class this week, which is where we take people out to Hidden Valley, and they can learn in the beacon field how to actually do rescues in an avalanche situation. So not only are those search and rescue services not available in the same way that they might usually be, we also can't do this preventative education that's really important for this community. I think what's been eye-opening about this shutdown is uh, learning that the national parks have these these helpers, um, helpers like the Rocky Mountain Conservancy that might run visitor centers as you do or concessions in parks. How much can you actually take on a, of the work of a national park and how long is that sustainable for a nonprofit? That's a great question. I mean, given the headlines over the past few days about how long might this shutdown happen, I've yeah. just been saying, you know, I'm trying to make it through tomorrow. This is new terrain for us. We're the partner to the National Park Service. We work lockstep with them, and that's really important. When our partner's gone, it's difficult for us to do our mission. We do things like we fund all of the Junior Ranger program here in Rocky and at Florissant Fossil Beds and other places. Um, but that, I mean, a booklet isn't a junior ranger program. That comes with a ranger and educational programs and activities and experiences and guided programs. Um, we're supposed to really be the icing on the cake Not of the what cake. happens here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right now we're sort of unfortunately, um, you know, a pretty mediocre cake um, <laughs> when there is no government here, the, uh, we have one visitor center that's, that's open that usually wouldn't be open that we're running independently because it's outside of the park and we lease it from a private entity. Um, but we should have rangers there working right next to us. We are not here to take the place of rangers. We're here to help support their mission. Are you having to disappoint a lot of people, turn them away when they come and say, we, we've, you know, come to Colorado. We're excited to see Rocky Mountain National Park. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing close to 400 people a day Sunday in our visitor centers, which is unusual because usually you would have visitor points of contact in the park, at the fee entrance stations, at the various visitor centers. Now there's really only one stop. Uh, and people are frustrated. They're generally being nice to us and our staff, understanding that this is not a local-level issue. Um, this is beyond, you know, the scope the decision point of the park superintendent or even state managers. This is really a national hmm. um, congressional and presidential issue that's resulting in this. So I hope, I'm hopeful that people will continue to support us um, and especially support park rangers. This is a gateway community here in Estes Park. So is Grand Lake, Colorado, and a number of other surrounding communities. Um, I mean, it's, you can't go anywhere without seeing a park ranger, and they're really demoralized by this. Nobody loves 
the park more than park rangers. Um, and they want to do their jobs, and they don't want to see the park damaged during this time. But what I also hear you saying is that there are spillover effects economically into those communities that are so closely tied to Rocky. Esty, thanks for being with us. I also love that your name is so close to Estes Park. It's like <laughs> yeah, you were, that's, a, you were, that's an unfortunate coincidence. You, you were <laughs> named you. for this job. Esty Rivera uh, is executive director of the Rocky Mountain Conservancy. That nonprofit helps maintain Rocky, and her organization is doing what it can to help during this government shutdown. In the face of climate change, a science fiction-y question comes up. Is there any way for us to change the weather back quickly? Paula Yunker of Edwards raised just such a question through Colorado Wonders. It's about forcing clouds to dump snow. Does cloud seeding really exist? Is that a thing? If so, what chemical do they use to make it snow? And then once they do that, how do they know that the clouds that they seeded are going to snow where they want it to snow. Well, Paula, cloud seeding does exist, but it's never been clear if it actually works. Until now. A team at CU Boulder studied this. Katya Friedrich is an associate professor in atmospheric and oceanic sciences. Hi, Katya. Good morning. Maybe we can start with the basics of cloud seeding. It can be done from the ground or by air, I understand. But in general, how does it work? So the way it works is that mountains push the air up and the air condenses into tiny cloud droplets. And these tiny cloud droplets are very, very small and they would not fall onto the ground. So what we do is we put a substance into these clouds and that make these tiny cloud droplets turn into ice and ice crystals. And these ice crystals turn into snow and then they precipitate out. So the idea is, again, to turn something that would otherwise just hover in the atmosphere into snow snow. And the substance that we are using is silver iodide. And we're using silver iodide because the structure of silver iodide is very similar to ice crystals, and it works very well. And is it sprayed into these clouds? Is it dropped in like pellets? So the problems with cloud seeding is that you need to get the substance into the cloud. So the easiest way is to fly an aircraft on top of these clouds and then shoot flares of silver iodide into the clouds. But on the other hand, another version you can do that is you just have burning flares on the ground. You burn the silver iodide and then you hope that these updrafts transport the silver iodide from the ground into the clouds. But this is obviously not as effective as flying over the cloud, but it's much, much cheaper. And and that is essentially what your research has found, that if you do this by air, it can be effective. That was what we showed. We could really trace the silver iodide that we released in the aircraft. We could trace it, how it enters the cloud, turns the water into ice, and then how the ice turns into snow and the snow falls on the ground. And that has been really, or this is very revolutionary and has not been shown. There's no question about that the physics works and that it works in a lab. Mm. But in reality, there's so many components that can make it not work. What can get in the way of successful cloud seeding? So first of all, you need to have a a cloud that has a lot of liquid, a lot of these cloud droplets. That's the first problem. The second problem is the silver iodide needs to get into the cloud. So if you have a lot of turbulence and if your distance is too far away, the silver iodide will not get into the cloud. And that's the problem with ground-based seeding versus airborne seeding. And then the silver iodide only works um, within a certain temperature range, so between minus 4 degrees to minus 8 degrees Celsius. So if it's too cold, we can cloud seed. Hmm. If it's too warm, 
home we can cloud seed. If it's too cold, we don't have enough super cooled liquids. So it's a little bit of a tricky endeavor. And it's expensive. And it is expensive. But again, I always say, like, what's the cost of water? So if the cost of water is very high, then cloud seeding does not be, is not very expensive. It's all relative, I suppose. So who is cloud seeding today and why? Cloud seeding has been around for many, many years and has it's been done in many, many countries. So in the U.S., um, cloud seeding has, is very, very popular in states like Wyoming, California, and Nevada, uh, Idaho. Colorado has been not as active in, in cloud seeding in the recent years. So, and again, the idea is to increase the snowpack. So cloud seeding, we're seeding orographic clouds in the winter, so between November and March. And the idea is to enhance the snowpack so we have more water that can then flow into reservoirs and can flow downstream in the in the spring and the summer. And who's so, paying for that? Is it like state governments? Is it ski resorts? I think there are various people who pay for that. Ski resorts, governments, power companies. Yeah, there are various people who pay for that. Power companies? Yeah, again, for them, the idea is because you're not just producing water, but you're also producing water that you can then turn into hydropower. Ah, interesting. Okay. So again, it goes back to the cost of water, the cost of electricity. If the, these costs go up, then cloud seeding becomes economically feasible. Does it work better in other states? What you need to have is these, these really rich, super cooled liquid clouds. And we done a study in Wyoming and then we did another study in Idaho. And we found that Idaho, because it's closer to the Pacific, has much, much higher liquid water content. And therefore, cloud seeding is much, much, or it's a little bit easier than maybe in Wyoming. So again, if you're closer to the, to an ocean, in our case in the Pacific, then you have more of these super cooled liquid clouds. But nevertheless, you need to cloud seed where you need to have the water. So that's why I think it's becoming more um, popular in Colorado because we need to increase the the snowpack at higher elevations, like for instance for the Colorado River, in order to feed the water to the other states. Now, could cloud seeding also produce rain in dry, warmer months? So there's other another branch of cloud seeding, seeding cumulus clouds in the in the summer. So again, it's the same principle. You have tiny cloud droplets and you put in um, silver iodide and you can uh, seed that. Um, this has been shown not to be as successful as orographic cloud seeding in the winter, again, because cumulus clouds, if you look at a cumulus cloud, there's a lot of dynamic in these clouds. And again, the problem also why it why we had such difficulties as a scientist to show that cloud seeding really works is you never have a reference. You never know whether this cumulus cloud might have turned into a uh, cumulonimbus and then precipitate out mm. or whether it really makes the cloud seeding cause the precipitation. Ah, it's very difficult to study. That's fascinating. What is the effect of this chemical, silver iodide, on the environment? So in the 70s and 80s, they started to study the effects of cloud seeding on human health. And they found that there are increased levels of silver in the water, but they are insignificant. So they are not really significant for human health or for animal and plants. That being said, um, if cloud seeding uh, starts to be more and more in, in various states, I think we should not give them a plank check. I think this still needs to be studied and water levels need to be controlled to make sure that it's really safe. Which leads me to my next question. Is this a reasonable approach to fighting climate change? Are there people who are seriously looking at cloud seeding and saying this is the way to make drier places wetter? 
So first of all, you always need to have systems that bring in enough moisture so you can extract the moisture. So as weather system moves farther north, that makes it difficult for us because we don't necessarily get these moist systems where we can extract the moisture. So that's the first question, whether we can, because you always need to have a system where you can extract um, water. If you have a dry environment, you cannot cloud seed. But the way I see cloud seeding is we really need to think about this in a broader sense. How can we generate water? How can we generate snowpack? How can we maintain snowpack? And how can we retrieve the water that we need? So I think cloud seeding is just a tiny bit in our puzzle piece in a bigger picture. And I think it's valuable, but I don't think it's really the overall solution to our problems. Katya, is cloud seeding a version of stealing? And the reason I say that is if if one state or one region cloud seeds and takes precipitation from a cloud that otherwise would have moved on and maybe <laughs> rained or snowed elsewhere, <laughs> do you, you know, what do you think? It's an interesting question. From a scientific standpoint, it's very, very hard to really quantify how much moisture we get out in one state, upwind versus downwind. So I think it's really hard to say because we never know whether this cloud that we see, let's say in Idaho, whether that would really produce precipitation in Wyoming or would have moved on and then maybe precipitate over the ocean. So from a scientific standpoint, we cannot quantify that. So I think um, it is really not a valuable question. However, um, there are tendencies where now actually states work together. So, for instance, um, the Colorado River states, they are now joining together and doing a cost sharing of cloud seeding. So I think, again, we need to think about water in a broader picture and include all the states and do not start with this fight, like who owns the water, who owns the water vapor in the atmosphere. Who owns the clouds? Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. CU Boulder's Katya Friedrich on new research that proves cloud seeding by air indeed produces snowfall. Our conversation is part of Colorado Wonders. What do you wonder about in our state? Head to CPR.org and submit your question. This is John Hickenlooper's last full day as governor. Among the highlights of his tenure being the first U.S. governor to implement the sale of legal recreational marijuana. That's despite his initial opposition. CPR's Anne-Maria Wad looks at Hickenlooper's legacy on legalization. When Governor John Hickenlooper looks back on five years spent trying to carefully craft marijuana legalization, he sees only a loyalty to the data. One of the things we're proud of is I think we didn't push the data one way or the other. We tried to be the one, the one central point where people could know that they weren't going to get a spin. And it's telling that the chief criticism of Hickenlooper from people on all sides of marijuana is that he never really was on anybody's side. Critics of pot told him to be more, well, critical. And he never was the weed cheerleader that legalization advocates hoped he'd be. I think Governor Hickenlooper really missed an opportunity to be a national leader on an issue that is incredibly popular and clearly moving in one direction. This is Mason Tavert, a partner at the marijuana business law firm Vicente Cedarberg, and one of the original authors of Amendment 64, which legalized recreational marijuana. Five years ago, Hickenlooper was one of the elected officials coming out in opposition to Amendment 64. But on election night 2012, voters approved it. 
Tavert says Hickenlooper set the tone for his administration's approach to marijuana that night. When Colorado voters approved the first ever law in the country to make marijuana legal for adults, his reaction that night when asked by media was, don't break out the Cheetos and goldfish yet. And in addition to being a cheesy comment, I think it left a salty taste in the mouth of a lot of people. When I made the comment on election night that, you know, hold on, let's not get out your goldfish and Cheetos, which was, you know, an effort to be humorous in the face of something that was, you know, catching the nation's attention. My point was really, let's make sure we get a set of rules and regulations in place so that we know what we're getting into. Cheetos and goldfish would go on to be a recurring gag line in that first year while Hickenlooper's administration got to work. One thing that he does get a lot of credit for is his stakeholder process, inviting hundreds of people to the table to get their input on legalization. That included a nonprofit called Smart Colorado that advocates for more stringent regulations to keep marijuana out of the hands of children. Rachel O'Brien is one of the founders. He firmly believed that Everyone should be involved in how we regulate this, not just the industry. And that's pretty important because industries aren't very good at self-regulation. And while O'Brien has kind words for Hickenlooper, she also has her criticisms. I don't think he's been careful enough on the, on the position of potency. Smart Colorado was very concerned about potency from day one. And now we know that marijuana concentrates approach 90 percent THC and that potency has gone up by over 20 percent. O'Brien's group is not the only one worried about the potency of THC. That's the active ingredient in marijuana that gets you high. Concentrates like wax, shatter, or oil continue to make up a larger share of sales year after year. O'Brien also points out that little has been done to regulate new, more discreet methods of consuming, like THC inhalers. Why are we five years in and the industry still creating deceptive products that are intended to hide marijuana from parents, teachers, and school. Despite the governor's efforts, O'Brien feels that regulators are always two steps behind a billion-dollar industry. Not so fast, says Andrew Friedman. He was Hickenlooper's first point man for marijuana regulation. He now runs Friedman & Kosky, a consulting firm that advises governments on shaping marijuana policy. And from where he's sitting, Friedman says other states are still catching up to Colorado. People who look at the system in Colorado and say there's so many things that could be changed should do a little tour of other states and, and uh, understand how vastly far ahead Colorado is uh, as a regulatory set structure than, than other states. But the, to the extent to which there are ongoing issues, those are national ongoing issues. Friedman and Hickenlooper really built the recreational system together, but left less of a stamp on Colorado's medical program, which has received mounting complaints in recent years. The Board of Health has not added a qualifying condition to the program since medical marijuana was made law 18 years ago. In recent years, more people have appealed directly to Hickenlooper to add a condition. And Friedman says governors are not typically in the business of determining what's medicine. That's usually left to the federal government. That's a tough call, right? There's no other space where governors have had to make that call before. That's just not the way medicine exists in the United States. Michelle Walker sees it differently. Walker is a mom of an autistic child and one of the advocates behind a bill that would have added autism spectrum disorder to the medical marijuana program's list of qualifying conditions. Hickenlooper vetoed that bill at the very end of the 2018 legislative session, his last one as governor. 
He sacrificed the lives of autistic individuals in Colorado for his run in 2020 so he could look like he was hard on marijuana or whatever verbiage we want to use. The thing is, Walker and other advocates thought they had a playbook for this. In 2017, Hickenlooper signed legislation adding post-traumatic stress disorder as a qualifying condition, even though the Board of Health had repeatedly rejected it on the basis of not enough research. Since he already circumvented the Board of Health once, Walker says it's hard for her to understand Hickenlooper's decision to veto the autism bill. How are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to say, well, you, we can't add it because there's not enough evidence or there's not enough research, but we can't have research because we don't have any evidence. And it's just this round and round circle. And for me, it comes down to which side of history are you going to be on, the right side or the wrong side? And unfortunately, I think Governor Hickenlooper in this aspect about autism is on the wrong side of history. And here's where you really get a sense of the tough position Hickenlooper can often find himself in when his cautious approach collides head on with public pressure for urgency. He says early research on PTSD proved promising, while there was not enough data on autistic children like Walker's son. And he would like to think that a President Hickenlooper would be just as careful with a decision like this. Would a President Hickenlooper support legalization in any form? Well, that's a hypothetical that as if I were to run for president and if I were to get to the White House, by that time we might have enough data that I could make a, a, a stronger position. I'm not, at this point, I'm still not willing to come out. I want, I want to make sure we keep collecting data and information. You know, if we go a little more slowly than what some of the entrepreneurs in the marijuana industry would like, that's not the end of the world. But if we go hell-bent for leather and suddenly something comes out that there's a consequence to, you know, the teenagers are smoking it more and it does affect their long-term memory. If, if some of these fears came to fruition, we'd, we'd, we'd feel pretty foolish. Of course, it was never going to be a simple yes or no answer. Hickenlooper, it seems, is embracing some of those words that have been used to describe him sometimes negatively over the years. Incremental, careful, and moderate. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, CPR News. Hickenlooper's successor is fellow Democrat Jared Polis. He'll be sworn in tomorrow. CPR's Ben Marcus looks at how that self-made businessman got to the state's top office and the challenges he now faces. Our story starts in the early 1990s. Jared Polis is living in the dorms at Princeton University. Now, before many people even knew what the internet was, he says he and some buddies decided to get together and start an internet access company. Basically started with like 10 modems and a server and people could dial in, you know, the old and they would be able to uh, access the internet. For the kids out there, that's the sound of a dial-up modem. Polis eventually sold the company for more than $20 million. He graduated with a political science degree, and then he helped take his family's sleepy greeting card company and put it online. E-greeting cards became all the rage, and Polis says BlueMountain.com took off. It actually grew to become the sixth most popular site on the internet during the holiday months uh, in 1999. His family sold the company at the height of the dot-com bubble for $800 million. That gave Polis the freedom and the money to pursue politics. He didn't waste any time. When Polis was just 25, he jumped into the usually low-profile race for State Board of Education. His Republican opponent, Ben Alexander, says he couldn't believe the rumors at the time that Polis had vowed to spend more than a million dollars on the race. Yeah, I jokingly said I ought to write him a letter and just give me a check for half a million dollars and he'll save you half a million dollars and I'll step out. All that money helped Polis win, and actually he's won every race in his political career. 
The loser, Ben Alexander, though, realized something. That Polis and his allies don't just want a school board seat. They want to remake politics in Colorado. And in many uh, respects, they have been uh, successful. And a few years later, in 2004, Polis helped shock the political establishment. From NBC News, Decision 2004. It was a great night for Republicans. George W. Bush won re-election. Republicans swept state houses across the country. But in Colorado, Democrats had managed to take control of both the Colorado State House and Senate for the first time in a generation. This was at a time, too, when Republicans had a commanding voter registration advantage here. Rob Whitwer, a former Republican lawmaker, wrote a book about it called The Blueprint. To say that Colorado Republicans were stunned the morning after Election Day is a gross understatement. Polis was a member of the so-called Gang of Four, a group of wealthy liberal activists that employed money and tactics never seen before in Colorado. Well, there's no question that Jared Polis, with his tech background and as a funder of this coordinated effort, really saw the synergies between uh, financial resources and the application of, of data. Applications of data that are now common in campaigns. And through the years, Polis has continued to use his vast personal wealth to support a wide range of issues and candidates. We analyzed two decades of campaign finance records, and Polis has donated to more than 400 different political groups in Colorado, supporting things like ethics reform and politicians, both big and small. In 2008, Polis, the candidate, jumped from the State Board of Education to Congress, spending millions of his own money on the race. In these times, we need leaders who understand how to create jobs. Jared Polis does. Polis has held the second congressional seat, stretching from Fort Collins to Vail to Boulder, for the last 10 years. There, he's championed gay rights. He was an early supporter of Obamacare. One of the great benefits of the Obama health care plan is that we will allow people to pursue their potential, to create jobs, to go off. But there's no one issue that defined Polis in Congress. He defies easy categorization. On most things, he's a liberal Democrat. But he has this libertarian bent. He once advocated privatizing the Postal Service. And Tom Cronin, a professor emeritus of political science at Colorado College, says Polis established himself as a tech and education expert. He has a reputation, having been a collaborator on a lot of legislation, uh, very active on education committees, and uh, his staff liked him a lot. I know a former students who have worked for him. They liked him a lot. Now, as governor, being likable will only get Polis so far. He faces daunting challenges from education to transportation to health care. He spent $24 million of his own money to win this chief executive seat, and he'll have more control than he's ever had to shape the state of Colorado. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. There's a phrase I hear a lot these days, let's unpack that. People aren't talking about a suitcase, but about unpacking a complicated idea. And it seems like the perfect way to describe The Daily. It's the smash hit podcast from New York Times. It unpacks the day's news with the expertise of the paper's global staff. Here's how The Daily unpacked the masterpiece cake shop case from Colorado. Jack, who came into your cake shop in July of 2012? Two gentlemen came into my shop. They had a folder with them and had my wedding books open. And so I went over and sat down with them, introduced myself. We exchanged names and uh, they said, we're here to look for wedding cakes. Mm -hmm. And it's for our wedding. 
And so I tried to respectfully explain to them that, I'm sorry, guys, I don't do cakes for same-sex weddings, but I would be glad to sell them anything else that I had in the shop. Mm-hmm. And they were surprised. They said, you know, what are you talking about? Then they stood up, swore at me, and stomped out of the shop immediately. That mm-hmm. was as far as we got. You know, when we were mortified and just felt degraded and it was all the worse to have Charlie's mom sitting there with us you know you don't want your mom to see something like that happen to you so you know we pretty quickly got up and we left we all had tears in our eyes we felt embarrassed honestly and my mom gave me a giant hug and she just said it's gonna be okay Well, The Daily, in addition to being a podcast, is also a radio show, and it's coming to CPR News this month. Its host, Michael Barbaro, joins us from the New York Times newsroom. Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. That was a powerful tape from both sides of that masterpiece cake shop case. Uh, When your team set out to do that episode, how did you decide on the approach? Well, my colleague Adam Liptak, our Supreme Court reporter, had interviewed some of the main characters in that story. And we tapped into what has become kind of a signature move uh, and resource for The Daily at The New York Times, which is that our colleagues are out there telling these stories and often recording these interviews. And I'd say for decades, nothing was happening to those interviews. They were just being deleted or cast aside or kept on recorders. And the way we began the show was by just simply asking our colleagues to hand over their tape their recordings of interviews to us, and we would log them and get them ready and build episodes around them. And that's what's been fascinating about building an audio show within the walls of the New York Times is so much of the reporting uh, was arriving in print or online and never seeing audio or never hearing audio. And the, the gift we had was to sort of borrow from all that audio reporting and make it our own. Fascinating. So all of that tape existed. It was just uh, harnessing it and disseminating it to the people. Uh, You work with mostly newspaper reporters who aren't necessarily Mm -hmm. used to being on the air. And I've heard a rumor that it sometimes takes hours to get just the right take when they're in the podcast. I wouldn't say it takes hours with any frequency, but I think it's fair to say that Telling a well-crafted, highly produced story in audio form is a test of everyone's patience. And so (laughs) what I mean by that is, you know, we are asking reporters to experiment in a new medium and not just audio, but the kind of audio storytelling that The Daily does, which we describe as narrative news. And by that, we simply mean approaching the story with all of the qualities of of telling a long, thought-through narrative story with with a narrative arc, a dramatic set of characters and tensions, and a big idea kind of embedded in it. And and to do that is to ask someone to tell a story differently than they would in print, for example, where you deliver the most important facts in order of their importance and – The payoff generally comes at the beginning rather than the end. The way a story unfolds on the daily, there's a very significant payoff that is earned through the way we tell a story at the end. And so that's just a a matter of of training. So yes, certain interviews uh, with certain reporters started off taking a long time, and now we breeze through them. 
I was reading a profile of you, Michael Barbaro, in Vanity Fair, which called you the Ira Glass of the New York Times, and it noted that you used... Well, that's, that's flattering, but there's only one Ira Glass. <laughs> uh, it noted that you used to cover Walmart, and I, mm-hmm. I wonder how that beat helped you understand America. Well, the Walmart story looks on the surface to be a simple story about just a behemoth retail company that cracked the code for how to sell the most goods at the lowest prices and turn that into a fabulously profitable business. In reality, Walmart intersected with every major facet of American life, whether that was labor law, immigration, health care, and ultimately politics, because both major parties in the U.S. began to use Walmart as an example of, of what they thought America should be or shouldn't be, could be or should never be. And covering it was a was really one of the great honors of my career because the Times gave me several years and a wide berth to travel around the country and understand how this company was was not just changing the face of retail but changing the face of business and society. And we're it's interesting we've now entered a kind of post Walmart phase, not to get too wonky as a former business reporter, huh. where Big, giant, monopolistic companies, whether it's Google or Amazon, dominate uh, our economy and we are living with the consequences of that. Walmart, I think, was the first company that opened at least my eyes to how powerful a single enterprise could be and how much it changed everything around it. When you covered Walmart, did you ever shop there or did you specifically avoid it because it could be a conflict Oh, you have to. No, there's no conflict of interest in walking into a Walmart and discovering that the out-of-stock rates in the sock aisle are are kind of off the charts, which is what would happen. I actually found myself loving to shop at all sorts of stores, but especially Walmart, and understand how different each store could be by region and how differently they operated. I loved being there at all different hours when shifts changed. I loved overhearing the workers talk about their grievances and their joys and yeah, I definitely didn't think it was a conflict of interest. You have to experience the thing you're covering. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And next week, CPR News unveils a new schedule that includes the radio version of the New York Times hit podcast, The Daily. I'm speaking with its host as a preview of sorts, Michael Barbaro. Okay, the New York Times former executive editor, Jill Abramson recently said the newspaper is unmistakably biased and anti-Trump. I'm gathering that that resulted in some conversation in the newsroom there. I'd love your take. Mm -hmm. Well, so the executive, the former executive editor of the Times, I believe was describing the early phase of Trump reporting um, by the Times. And I think the word she used was unmistakably anti-Trump. I do not subscribe to that belief. I do not believe that was an accurate characterization. But I don't want to speak for myself. I'm sure the the broader New York Times response um, would be similar, that we hold this president to account and his administration to account. And I think we have gone to extraordinary lengths to understand this administration and how it operates, its personalities, its values, and and that that has created a body of journalism that is that is not at all anti-Trump. Uh, so I just I just don't agree with that. Uh, sure, it's generated uh, it's generated 
conversation and, and interest, and especially from, from the, the president, who I think seized on it, um, that's the world we live in. Um, the comments like that are always going to have momentary, outsized, I guess, uh, white light around it, but, but I don't believe it to be the case. We have about 30 seconds. Um, what are you most excited about for what's next for The Daily? Well, I think that The Daily spent our first two years, we're now almost two years old, you know, by necessity, having the host and a lot of our team be very tethered to the operation of making the show. It was just a Herculean enterprise to create a daily, highly produced audio show within an old newspaper. Hmm. And having successfully done that, I think we get to hit the road in this next year. We get to have producers traveling the world. We have one who just went to uh, the border in Mexico to tell that story or to Europe or wherever. I spent last week in Washington. When we began the show, just the logistics of the host or producers being on the road was was really overwhelming because of the work we had to do and the smallness of our team. And now that we've gotten bigger and we've kind of uh, earned the ability to to, to travel, we're doing it more, and I think it's going to create a more urgent, textured version of the show, and I'm really excited about that. Nice to meet you, if virtually, Michael. My pleasure. We're so excited to be carried by this station, and uh, we hope people listen. Michael Barbaro hosts the New York Times podcast, The Daily, which comes to CPR's airwaves January 14th, weekdays at 3. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Imagine an earthquake or maybe a building collapse or cave-in. There's a race against the clock to find people who are trapped. Well, now there's a race to develop a new way of rescuing them using drones. A team from Colorado is facing off in this national competition. Professor Sean Humbert of CU Boulder's Mechanical Engineering Department is with us. Hi, Sean. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm good. Nice to have you on the show. So, um... A friend of mine got a drone for Christmas, and I flew it around his apartment a little. It was tough not hitting the wall or his kid. I can't begin to imagine what it would take to maneuver through narrow, winding, dark passageways. I, I gather that's just one of the challenges you're working on. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the DARPA challenge, every five years they, they sort of set one of these up. And uh, the subterranean one offers a lot of really interesting uh, problems, like you said. So the autonomy piece, being able to perceive and map and maneuver through your environment, very difficult, especially to do it real time. And uh, th- these drones operate for about 15 minutes, typically. DARPA also wants these missions to last for one to two hours. So there's also, uh, in addition to the perception and the autonomy side, there's the, the persistence. Uh, and of course, if you're underground, you've got all the communications aspects that are difficult as well. You know, I can't typically get line of sight and 2.4 gigahertz and throw all the map data back and forth. I might be able to send a text message if I find a human or a person or a chemical leak or something like that. So all of those wrapped up together make for a very hard problem. You mentioned DARPA. This is the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And CU Boulder got a $4.5 million federal grant from DARPA. Okay, so just to, to break down, to unpack some of the challenges there, battery life has to be important if you're going to go for hours trying to rescue people. 
Sure, absolutely. Yeah, that that persistence uh, part of it. Uh, we've got some unique solutions, and our team is not just CU Boulder; it's also CU Denver. And we've got some great faculty and students down there working on the power problem. Huh. Uh, not at liberty to say our, what our exact solution is right now, but uh, we, we've got some some interesting ways to to extend the life of the drones for for about one or two hours. And then anyone who's gone into a tunnel and tried to have cell service knows that's really difficult. So this aspect of communication when a drone is in a deep, dark place, uh, it's just a whole other challenge. Yeah, it is. So you don't have this 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi where you can throw a lot of data back and forth, like I said. So, you know, if maybe there's uh, just a bend in the, the tunnel or the corridor, you know, you can still use some some traditional stuff. But, you know, we're looking at different frequencies and different ways to communicate data. So um, these missions will be a collaborative effort. So you'll have ground vehicles and aerial vehicles collaborating and trying to build the map together. And so we're trying to understand the best way to, to you know, maneuver the drones so that they can communicate. And you know, sometimes we're going to be sending ground vehicles back and forth just to ferry information so that, that that complete mapping solution can get transferred out to the first responders. That is, you might have a drone, but you also might have other types of vehicles that are shuttling information back and forth. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And huh. there's three stages to this. The, fir- the first is sort of a, a tunnel, you know, like a man-made tunnel type of underground system. The next will be something like a, like a DC metro station, something with some 3D structure where you might have to fly up a vertical shaft or climb stairs. And that the third version is the natural cave environment where you might have mud and fog and uh, water and these sort of things. And the idea would be to perceive either a person who needs rescuing or maybe even objects associated with a person, like, I don't know, a backpack or something. Absolutely, yeah. So the idea is that uh, in the challenges, there will be about 25 different artifacts located throughout the environment. And uh, you're graded on how accurate you locate those as well as identifying those. And then there's a temporal component as well. So they want these things to be at operational tempos. We want to be able to send things in and, you know, within 15 minutes have the complete environment mapped out and locations of all, you know, people or chemical uh, leaks or, uh, you know, cell phones or any of these types of things. I love the turn of phrase operational tempo. Um, This could eventually make the work of first responders much safer. In addition to rescuing people, I suppose it means that the drones go so that the first responders don't necessarily have to take those initial risks. Is that true? Exactly. And that's really what it is. And so you can imagine a building that's on fire. The environment is not such that you can have a camera and necessarily navigate through. So we have all these really interesting perception type solutions with radar, millimeter wave radar and some other things so that you can fly through smoke and you can still map the environment out in those austere types of uh, environmental conditions. What is the challenge that you think is most daunting? You sounded pretty peppy when it came to the battery life. Yeah. So the, the power definitely is, is an interesting challenge. I think the real-time implementation and the operational tempo aspects of this. So there are a lot of solutions out there that require a lot of computation for the autonomy piece. You know, we can do mapping. We can do simultaneous localization of mapping. Uh, but it's getting it working on something that's small and real-time. And so you kind of balance sort of the nice robustness and mathematical properties of these computationally intensive algorithms with, hey, I need something real-time and I need it to work most of the time. It's okay if you lose one or two of these vehicles in a mission, but you know you need something that's going to be persistent over that one hour or two hour types of thing and, st- and not ha- require shifting batteries every 15 minutes. Thanks for being with us, Sean. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ryan. Appreciate the time. Sean Humbert, he's a professor in CU Boulder's Department of Mechanical Engineering. They've received a $4.5 million grant along with CU Denver as part of the National Subterranean Challenge. The goal is to come up with a drone that can help in rescues. Finally today, new music from Joshua Trinidad. The trumpeter and composer grew up in Denver and learned to play at an early age, studying music under some of his hometown trumpet heroes like Ron Miles and Al Hood. Trinidad's signature sound blends avant-garde jazz with ambient electronica, often processing his trumpet through effects pedals. For his latest album, though, in November, he foregoes the electronics and went with a more traditional trio. The album is defined by the relaxed restraint of its performances, like in this track, Torreón, named for the town in Mexico, where Trinidad's family comes from. Denver trumpeter Joshua Trinidad. His latest album in November is out.